I'm thinking of that. Uh, I grew up in the Baptist Church in South Central Los Angeles, and my mother uh, played in the was the uh, choir director. And I remember a song that she would often recite before she was getting ready to sing or do something, and it was, give me a clean heart so that I can serve you. So that is my prayer for this evening, that I sit and offer you dharma from the purest heart that I can tap into. So thank you for your attention. And just also want to thank you for your practice. This is, you know, we've got one more evening together, and I'm sure some of you have got your foot in, <laughs> headed out. There's a lot of activity and new bodies and cars, and there's information on the table. And so we're starting to lean into leaving, and, uh, and yet we're still here. So I encourage you to... Um, to the degree that you can really take full advantage of this time that we have together. And I'm grateful that I've been able to witness so many, so many of you uh, kind of soften and uh, relax and find places of ease, moments of freedom, moments of insight. And it's just been wonderful to see how you've um, cooked yourselves. We're kind of cooking in a soup together. Tanithra talks about we're all a soup that we need to taste. And this retreat has a sub-title uh, to it that's really diversity. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's, it, it doesn't quite look like this in a lot of places, and that's kind of what I want to talk about this evening. But I also want you to know that uh, um, honoring my mom, my mother died a year ago on Monday of this retreat, and this uh, Saturday we're having a one-year anniversary, and she lived, like, not too far from here. So my family, which is huge, because there were eight of us, my mother had eight kids and um, 32 grandkids, 16 great-grandkids, and 12 great-great, you know. And she didn't miss a beat in her life. <laughs> At her 90th, uh, she, she uh, knew she was dying. She was quite ill and had been for a while. And so she threw herself a 90th birthday party. She, she almost made it, one month short. But uh, she cooked most of the food, and she played the piano throughout. And uh, the people that showed up to the party, you know, in fact, some of her kids weren't invited, but that's another dormant topic. <laughs> I came anyway. I just showed up. <laughs> but they had tables for the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I said, well, where's the table for the 60s? She said, I didn't invite you, remember? <laughs> so people that were in their hundreds, and they got all dressed up. And the way they honored my mother was that um, she had taught so many of them uh, the gospel song that brought them to life, you know, to, it's 
Sometimes you sing a song and it brings out the life in you. And that was what my mother did so beautifully. So these old elders, I'm telling you, some of them in wheelchairs, um, dressed up to the max, showed up in my mom's party and sang the song that she helped them embody that brought them to life. And it was really uh, an afternoon of sacred tenderness. It was so precious. Uh, my mother played the piano the whole time. So it's, it was beautiful. So we're, we're, we're uh, celebrating her again this Saturday. And I certainly need all the dorma I can get before I go to visit <laughs> with all the folks. <laughs> uh, you know, family is, is, um, is sangha in a way when you think about it. You know, sangha is the world we're going to be going back into when we leave here. We can, we can say sangha is the community that's here. But Sangha is really our relational field. Eugene did a beautiful job last night of talking about the ultimate and relative reality, um, which are two expressions of one truth. And how in, in, and yet it, we need the relative reality in order to wake up. We need these bodies, we need our relational, um, we rub up against each other in order to be enlightened. That's what moving around in the relative world is all about. So it's useful to uh, think about our lives in the context of Sangha, and we all come into this, to sitting here uh, with a story, with a path, or as Tanisara says, a path. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> so it's useful to reflect on, on our lives, especially in terms of looking at, I want to look at our, our racial suffering in relationship to Sangha and just see if we can start to see, because we're already in that soup cooking a bit. You know, you can tell by the questions that are raised, the, where the heart is in this collective. And the fact that so much attention, so much heart went into making sure this group had diverse representation so that we can cook into our um, uh, truth. You know, I just want to talk about that because we're getting ready to leave this context and go back out there. Um, and most of the people out there have not been on retreat. So, you know, we're getting, we're already leaning into that. They're already coming into this space, so. But reflecting on our lives a little bit to just see the um, stream that got us here. And, and you know, I, I grew up in um, South Central Los Angeles in the thick of the civil rights movement. And um, my mother and so many people in our community were intensely involved in that movement. And I remember uh, being a very sensitive and tender-hearted person. I used to be teased and called a crybaby. And, you know, there's always one of those real sensitive ones in the family that that's difficult. But um, 
it was very, I, I didn't know what to do with my tenderness. What I knew was that it was dangerous to have it. And I grew up knowing that people like me were hated in the world. And I grew up watching my great-grandmother um, pace and worry herself because her concern was constantly about her black babies and black bodies in our lives. Then worried, just a constant worry. I remember one time saying, I'm not going out like that, you know. But my bigger heartbreak was that it was nothing I could do to console her. And there was no consoling of this deep pain of not knowing if you, you know, your kids go out, you may not see them again. That was very, and still is, very, very real in my family and in my life. And so it was an atmosphere of fear and high control and uh, violence. And it, it was just a scary world to be in and no place for you to just be gushy-gushy with, with your heart. So I had to pack that away. By the age of 15, I was pregnant. I had a baby. I was a teenage mom. And at 17, my father was murdered. And I, was, I, was, I remember um, it so vividly, not that I was so crushed by it emotionally, emotionally at the time, but what I remember doing was holding my two-year-old son so tight for so long as, the, as we went through my father's funeral and it had to go through the National Guards because of the, it was right in the thick of the Watts riot. So there was all this um, intense uh, fear and, uh, uh, and, um, and, and, and then rage. I remember being quite the rager when I was young. Had to write a book about it just to get it out of my system. <laughs> but I was a, a rager for no good reason. I mean, it, it, it was just an energetic, a, 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 I, was, I was just mad at the world. And I was good at what I did, so I was tolerated by a lot of people, especially a lot of white people who liked the work that I did, but they could barely stand my attitude half the time. <laughs> But it was just, it was just no, I had no sense or skill of how to, how to uh, keep that under wraps because I had held it for so long. And at 27, I had open heart surgery. And what happened at the time is because my mother had lost two siblings to death who went into the hospital for something simple and never came out. She had a, a, a real intense fear of, of, of hospitals and institutions and places that were uh, run by, you know, basically white people. So she was pretty convinced that I wasn't going to come out of this surgery alive. And I don't know if, if, if I quite felt that. But what I recall was how she filled the, the um, room up the night before with a, with a lot of uh, praying folks and they, they were in there all night praying. <laughs> Even some stranger, she said, well, I just picked this one off the street because they, <laughs> they looked like they had some good vibes and I wanted them in this room. I looked around and it's like, who are these people? She said, it doesn't matter. 
But can you, can you imagine just having this fear where you're, you know, it's just hard to, you know, the, 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 the oppression from just your body, physicality, your personhood being at risk in, in so many places that you turn to for support or, or where you need support. So that's what I grew up in. And what was interesting about the surgery, the heart surgery, is that in retrospect, I was able to see, um, you know, that it was, the, it, was a, it was a surgical procedure, but it was the beginning of opening my heart. And it was, the recovery was like the first silent retreat I went on because I had to be still, I couldn't make myself do anything, and I was shocked back into my body and what I had been running from. But the theme at the core of it at the time was, can I trust, and this is what's going into the surgery, can I trust white people with my heart? And that's the question that's alive in Sangha as well. When we look at the divisions in our Sanghas, you know, everybody I grew up with had some kind of story like this. In, in, in my world, and I don't think it was unusual. And I think everybody's concerned about where can they put their trust and not be trampled on. But that was a collective, um, generational wound and worry that I carried, and I could see it so clearly. And it's no mistake that my heart was the area of attack because it's always been about the heart for me. The crybaby lives on, even to this day. <laughs> so can I trust my tenderness in this diversity? Can I do it? And I like to just kind of pick up, you know, we've gotten so many goodies this week in terms of tools and, you know, um, Tanisra just blew our mind on looking at the, the large scope around some of the colonialism and ways we've been conditioned. And I'd like to just spend a little time looking at just what's right here, what's in our immediate environment, what's, what, what we're dealing with day-to-day uh, -day in our relational, in our relative reality of things. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh says, that there's no such thing as an individual. And so, uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that what we do is, is so interrelated. We, we are brushing against each other all the time. We really do create waves in our lives. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh also said that the next Buddha will be a Sangha. So the, the, the opportunity we have, and especially at this retreat, which was so intended and attended around our diversity and the collectiveness that's here, mistakes and all, all of it is, is such heart here that we're cooking uh, this whole idea of, of Buddha as it lives in Sangha. I have a Sangha sibling, Sebene Silesia in New York, and she said, she said the Sangha is the stepchild 
of the three jewels. You got the Buddha, the Dharma, but when do we ever get this Sangha thing together? And so I think that's, a, that's an area for us, especially here in the West. And I love how um, the, the, the term that uh, Kitasaro used, um, orphan of consciousness, because I also think Sangha and our relationship to Sangha uh, sometimes can be an orphan of consciousness. So we're conditioned in our lives, just like my journey, we all have a journey, and we're conditioned around what we see and what we don't see. You know, we're touched by our lives and it creates certain shapes and patterns and views and karas in our, in our, and what comes up on the cushion, what doesn't, and so on. And so we come to our practice and we sit on the cushions and it's all great. But the minute you start engaging with each other, all kind of things can happen that you may know about or you may not know about. I remember um, going through the uh, uh, dedicated practitioner program, and it's a, it's a program that I'm assisting in right now, but it's a program that is about learning all the teachings of, um, of the Buddha. And we engage around the suttas and really have conversations about them and really try to understand. And, and that's where the, the, the dynamics of racial division and, and uh, suffering starts to reveal itself. One of the intentions that I recall with the East Bay Meditation Center was to create a place where um, we, there could be diving into um, this, this, the Dharma without the tension that is so palpable and so real in our sanghas when we start to engage with each other. And that's with the teachers, that's with the yogis, because the Dharma and our sanghas are no different than anything else in our society, anything else that we see out in the world. So um, sometimes I like to talk about this in terms of stars and constellations in the, in the sky. So we look out in the sky and it's full of stars. We're all good individual stars. We all have a journey, you know, that we've traveled and, and uh, we appear in these body forms for a while and shine. And then there are constellations you know, and, and if, you, if you don't know how to recognize the Big Dipper, when you look in the sky, you will only see the stars. But there's actual formations that are there that we can see and say, oh yeah, that, like some of the Gestalt images, you know, the old lady, young lady, in the one image, you know, you, you see the old lady, but you don't see the young lady, or no, no, that's a young lady. And they're both there. And the mind has to train, its, train itself to see that pattern. I was at a, a conversation uh, in Charlotte to discuss um, the, um, at, it was after Michael Brown had been killed. And so we had a group of, a group of very um, concerned 
community people come together and, and have a talk about it. And one question we were asked was, discuss your understanding of what happened. And there was a white man that was sitting there and he said, well, um, I just think it was really unfortunate that that police officer killed that young man. And my heart is broken from it. And it's, it's just horrible that that happened. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, hmm. So when it was my turn, it, I said, it, 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 it breaks my heart that once again, you know, we've got um, an unarmed black person killed by an armed white police officer. Again, to me, there's a collective and a cumulative, a, a constellation, a big dipper around this situation. So there was no color in the white man's comment, but his heart was there and his concern was genuine. And so the weight of our conversation was very different. It wasn't that there wasn't concern, but that the constellation wasn't able to be recognized. That's a big part of our, our divide. It's not just around race. You can get any of these um, um, intense identities or group identities that we are part of as as a relative being in this world. So I've been doing this retreat that I developed called Mindful of Race, and it's been floating around different Dharma communities, and it's offered to leaders in, in, in different sanghas to kind of wake up to some of the pattern, patterning that we have around these dynamics. And there are some things that we can begin to look at but it's, it's easier to look at this if you look at it from the lens of a collective and not from the lens of, of just the personal lens, me as, a, as an individual. So I'd like to offer a couple of things to kind of look for as we, you know, to kind of bring your tender heart to might be the best way to say it. As you go back into, you know, the communities that you live and breathe in, the sanghas, the families, the world. These places where tenderness is needed and kind attention. So I'm going to use these terms just for, you know, like we got Big Dipper. It could have been called anything. But I'm going to use people of color and, and white folks. So just bear with me while I just try to, to, to show some constellations that uh, reflect a bit of separation. And I'm not trying to separate us with this. I'm trying to show where the separation is, is obvious or is, 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 a, is showing up in our relative worlds. So it, it, it probably won't be new for a number of you. So there's the, um, there's the individual. One of the, one of the places where I think we get um, uh, stuck is, is at the individual and group level. We, we're all good individuals, we're all stars, and then uh, we're also all part 
of uh, group identities, if you will. We're working just the relative reality here. So I'm woman, I, I belong to the woman, you know, to the elder, the, the grandmother. I'm great-grandmother, actually. I, anyway, another Dharma talk. <laughs> oh, the generations of teenage parenting continues, what can I say? And uh, I'm, I'm in the lesbian group identity. You know, all these identities are ways that we kind of come to know ourselves and show up in the world and they mean, they mean things, you know, author, you know, all these things. <clears throat> and uh, when we start to engage around race, um, some of us know that we're part of a race collective and others of us don't identify that way. We identify as in individuals. So when we start to have the conversation around race or to understand how we are with each other, we miss each other. Because people of color come to conversations around race with a collective, accumulative story representing collective, typically. And commonly, white people will come to the conversation as good, well-meaning individuals. And the historic and um, impact and um, all of the things that go with a collective uh, sense of um, spices and ingredients in the soup is not always brought into awareness in the interaction and we miss each other. There's frustration in that tension and um, uh, an invisibility and hurt that puzzles everybody in that dynamic and it's hard to watch. So we separate. Another thing that's hard is that um, we don't always get that we, we uh, have to attend to not only our intention, but also our impact. We, we have good intention and it has impact. And sometimes dominant culture members are really concerned about their intention but it's hard to see the ripple effect or the impact that it might have. And people of color tend to be the ones that hold the weight of the impact. So that's another dynamic that I think that kind of separates us as we try to bridge and cook our soup together. I had a a, a Sangha sibling say to me, she said, oh, Ruth, this is a white woman, she said, oh, Ruth, I, I just have to be so cautious and so careful when I'm around you now because, gee, you know, you just, you, you just make things so hard and I'm always putting my foot in my mouth and, you know, my gosh, you know, she was really <laughs> mad at me, you know. And I said, well, you don't have to be cautious. I just want you to be a little bit more conscious about your impact, that's all, you know. Not so easy, but that's all. And I'll try to be gentle <laughs> in my response because fundamentally, I love you, you know. So just, just, just noticing that. And I had another friend at a, at a retreat. Uh, we were on a, re on a silent retreat, month long, and somebody said something, one of the teachers that was just so not right, 
And she uh, got something that really was racially inappropriate. She was so disturbed that she wrote me a note, wrote the teacher a note, and, and um, the note was on the, in, in, in the sense of, uh, I got to tell you, you know, I'm, I can't believe he did that, and I'm, I'm there with you, and I'm supporting you, and, and, and I wasn't even upset about the, the note. <laughs> So at the end of the retreat, I said, what was going on? She says, well, I just thought that was inappropriate, and I was concerned about how you felt, and this is just not right. And I said, but how were you feeling? What impact did it have on you? And the subtlety of impact, I mean, she was holding a lot of suffering in that moment with what, with what happened. It was her suffering in that moment. But the, but the framing of it was around, around helping me as the one person of color that was at the retreat that time. So it's that kind of thing that I think um, is where we miss each other. That's an example of not having a sense of collective identity to get that, that you're a race and, you, and, and, and your race hurts, hurts too. It was, it was quite the moment for both of us. Another dynamic is around timing. And um, there's a certain urgency, for example, when, um, when the prison system is on the stock market and one in every three black kids are kind of tagged early on to go into prison. And, you know, it seems like every week somebody's being, some black person's being killed. And so I have an urgency for people to wake up and get this stuff. And sometimes that same urgency doesn't, is not felt or met or, or connected with around these is issues uh, with my white Sangha siblings. And I'm not talking to you as individuals. I'm talking about that collectiveness. This is, these are collective dynamics that are at play that keeps us separate around what our priorities are or whether we're seeing it or not and things like that. So it's a deep wound. And there's a collusion around just blindness, not talking about race, sameness, staying with people that are like you, you know, and silence where, you know, we just don't, don't go there. And Rumi says, how can we be polished if we're irritated by every rub? So one of the beautiful things about being in a collective is that with the questions we've had, with the foots we've put in our mouths as teachers, or the, you know, whatever it is, um, how can we be polished uh, if, if, um, if we're sensitive by every rub, if we're irritated by every rub? And Gloria Steinem says that um, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. So. <laughs> We just keep that in mind. So I'm a, I'm a proponent for um, having us uh, get into, um, you know, retreats or places where you can deepen and be with, you know, and, and, and touch into that place of ultimate reality through our um, experiences of what arises and what doesn't. But if race doesn't arise for you, it's, it's not so easy to, ex to investigate it if it's not coming up. But when you get stimulated through a different kind of sangha where you can come together and talk about what's real for me in this race story, 
or what, you know, where, where I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging affinity groups to come together and really be in places of safety to unpack and explore what can be different or what can, what can I learn? What do I need to heal? What is, what is here for me? How do we organize our hearts so that there is less harm in the world? How can everyone be free, starting from the inside? That's a piece of work we haven't quite done enough um, in our lives. So I think this is an important um, uh, way to polish the, this kind of third jewel, if you will, of the Buddhist teachings and to have us um, apply ourselves with some inquiry and apply our practice, bring our tender hearts to an inquiry in this area. So the collective needs our hearts, our tenderness, and it also needs our joy. Um, the, Bo the Buddha uh, uh, teaches about the Bodhisattva um, and the Bodhisattva uses every obstacle in life to cultivate bodhicitta, the heart-mind, for the benefit of all beings. So when we say for all beings, it doesn't mean that we're going to do this necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, but it's cultivating our heart in ways that we know it has a broad and um, heartfelt radiance that is out into the world. And we are enriching that radiance when we understand um, this, this racial suffering that's right in our communities, right in the Sangha, right in, in the White House, right, right, you know, right here. It's one of those pivotal uh, truths in the relative sense that is a major source of suffering. And it's in, in the Buddhist teachings on suffering can be a useful tool, a useful way for us to, he, he, he specialized in suffering. <laughs> Racial division is, is a really deep wound in our community. So this, uh, it, it also needs um, us to bring a bit of uh, joy. I mean, I think this walk uh, has to include a bit of joy and creative expression. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of a contemplative artist uh, so that we can maybe bring a bit of um, uh, ease and comfort to ourselves uh, to loosen the grip uh, that we, uh, and the contraction that we might find ourselves in as we're exploring this territory. I first heard that term from from Pat Coffey, who's a, a teacher practitioner in the Charlottesville, Virginia area and part of uh, the teaching team at Insight Meditation Community of Washington, uh, Taurus group that, that, I, that I love and I'm involved in. And um, he talks about it being our ability to express ourselves in a genuine way and not be like the good Buddhist or the, the perfect yogi and, and to get out of the scripts. 
and to really see what the heart, how the heart wants to express itself in a creative way. And it was timely for me because I've been sitting with that idea of a contemplative artist in my own life and seeing how it plays in my writing and just in um, how quickly I can let go of something that somebody said that upset me. That's almost a dance. If you look at just the rhythm of letting go, you might even see that it has a, a move to it. So this idea of uh, artist is... Uh, useful. It could be the artist formerly known as suffering. We can play with <laughs> Princess Tara. <laughs> so uh, an artistic expression or artistry as a, as a wisdom practice, as a practice of selflessness and creativity and generosity, ways of expressing yourself in a way that uh, nurtures the world through something that only you can, can offer up because of these forms that we're in. And we all have uh, a way that we do that. So Jane Hirschfield, uh, who's a Soto Zen practitioner and poet, AKA Sujata, she says that suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. And this is a certain beauty we're talking about, offering through our own um, gifts of expression. She says, we make art because our lives are ungraspable, uncarryable, impossible to navigate without it. Art isn't a superficial addition to our lives. It's as necessary as oxygen. Amidst the cliffs and abyss every life brings, Art allows us to find a way to agree to suffering, to include it and not be broken, to say yes to what actually is. And then to say something further, something that changes and opens the heart, the ears, the eyes, and the mind. A work of art is always a conversation, not a monologue. So to me, this idea of artistry starts to create a certain um, uh, joy that uh, is supporting us in our work. It doesn't mean you have to go do something big, but this is about an authentic way of expressing yourself in the world and showing up in relationships and it being a partner in the, the things that grip us in life. You know, I don't know if you noticed in the dining hall, but that altar right up there where they ring the bell, there's a fire hydrant thing hanging right next to it. Do you notice that? So it, to me, I got so tickled because it's, here's, here's something that's just stuck in the wall, a fire hydrant, and here's this altar, and they put a little cloth. They draped a cloth over it, and it all blends into something very uniquely uh, expressed. It could be that simple and lovely at the same time. Considering art as an expression of affection that heals and expands the heart. That's what we're looking at. And a way of welcoming and dancing with the suffering in the world. When I was um, writing my book, on healing rage, I remember going to sit with um, 
Angelus Arian, who's an anthropologist and writer and just elder. She's passed now, but she lived in the Sausalito area, and I went and sat with her, and I said, I'm just going nuts trying to write this book. And, and uh, you know, I'm writing about rage, and it seems like every page is burning up after I write it because it's just so hot. And, I, and, and she looked at me, and she says, have you planted a garden? I said, what? <laughs> she said, when's the last time you went dancing? And I said, oh, dancing, I like that. She says, what's your favorite song? And the idea was, you know, she says, you, you need this other thing happening when you're doing this stuff in the world. You know, when you're working the edges, you need, you need, the, um, you need an expression that um, is joyful. Mudita, the antidote, the soothing, the salve, the balm of dukkha. And uh, the world needs to see these expressions. They need to feel like they're, it's almost like these expressions become uh, the, the atmosphere that's in the middle of the things that arise and passes away. It's a flavor that's added that soothes. I'm thinking of all my ancestors that sang songs when they worked. And it's the same idea of creating a vibration of love and hope that we bring to our lives, knowing that, as we've been taught here, that freedom is at the base of everything that we do. And when we are um, uh, setting an intention in these ways as we move out in the world to, to kind of take our tender hearts to places that make sense and have that expressed in ways that bring both a sense of clear seeing wisdom as well as a sense of love or, or artistic expression. We're cultivating bodhicitta. These are, these are not other ways of talking about the paramis. When we're working with artistry or whatever that expression is, it's a discipline. We have to give it our attention. It changes shapes. We have to dance with it. We need to have patience. And all of these paramis are, are kind of functioning um, as we give ourselves in these ways. And that's what helps the bodhisattva cross the floods of life, these paramis. And I think we touch directly into them when we are uh, exploring an artistic expression. Temp uh, um, tenderness, empathy, flexibility, curiosity, kindness. Those are the territories that we open up to. So another quote with Rumi, he says, Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door of your study and begin reading all those Dharma books. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel down and kiss the earth. And that's the gesture, the bowing in the morning is, you know, this is, this is an offering uh, of kindness that we uh, can do in simple ways and in elaborate ways. In Toni Morrison's new book that's out called God Help the Chow, she says, silence is as close to music as you can get. 
And that's a beautiful bridge of looking at um, the sounds of silence. We can hear music in our practice. We can touch into this territory. And it's a very useful um, practice as we're working with these edges of healing racial suffering and all suffering for that matter. So I'd like to leave you with, um, I'm sure you've been dying to know what the screen is right behind me. So <laughs> I'd like to leave you with, um, uh, with uh, the sounds of a contemporary bodhisattva, uh, the late great Nina Simone, who, um, in, uh, you know, who, who was the sixth child of a preacher family in North Carolina. I'm living in North Carolina now, so I'm feeling you, Nina. <laughs> she, um, if you don't know who she is, she was quite um, uh, an amazing um, pianist and uh, concert pianist, started off wanting to be uh, more in the jazz field. And against all odds, she she was um, she offered her uh, gifts in the world through piano and singing. And she was somebody that was hated a lot because of her skin color, because of her um, unapologetic blackness. Uh, she she just didn't try to dress it up. She wasn't in the business of trying to make somebody happy. Uh, but she was passionate and in love with the uh, transference that happened in her offering uh, through her music and sound, her voice. So as you watch this bodhisattva, what I want you to do is just notice the uh, quality of both absolute and relative reality in her singing. Notice how she uses her full body, not just her voice and the piano keys, and see how she integrates the message of racial um, tension and freedom in the message of this song. This song is called, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. And um, if Nina had been living in my neighborhood where I grew up, she would have been a student of my mother's and they would have played music together and jazz together. Because one of the fondest memories I have growing up was jam sessions on Friday night where the jazz artists in our neighborhood came together. And they came to our house because my mother played the piano. And um, so they brought the bass and all these other instruments and they would be in pure improvisation the whole time. And the, uh, the delight of that, just seeing people come with what they brought in their own way, and it was different every time, was so magical. So given my mother's one-year anniversary are, are, are about to leave, um, I'd like to just share this tune with her and then have it sit for a minute.
to be free I wish I could break All chains still binding me Wish I could say All the things that I can say when I'm relaxed I'd be starting anew I wish I could be like a bird in the sky Don't leave me How sweet it would be To find that I could fly I'd soar to the sun And look down at the sea Then I'd sing Cause I know how it feels to be free Then I'd sing Cause I know how it feels to be free I wish I could share Wish you could know what it means to be me And you'd see, you'd agree Everybody should be free Cause if we ain't, we're murderous Wish I could be like a bird in the sky
So let's sit together for a minute. mere practice continue to open our hearts tenderize our hearts for the service of all beings without exception may all beings be safe from inner and outer harm May all beings be happy and content. May they know contentment. May all beings experience health and wellness. May all beings be free. free from suffering, creative, generous, patient, tender-hearted. May all beings be free. Thank you for your kind attention.